The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Father, and of the Son, and of the Most Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle them the fire of thy love. Set forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us. And may the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I'm your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. And yourself? Well, Father, thanks for being here. Good, sir. Father, I thought we could talk tonight about a uh, recent Francis homily, which was given for the Feast of Corpus Christi. There are a few, uh, it's rather rather short homily, but there are some uh, very interesting, interesting quotes in here, interesting to say the least, from Francis. And I'll just read through uh, just this, this first one here, Father, and get your comment on this, where Francis says, in the presence of the Eucharist, Jesus, who becomes bread, this simple bread that contains the entire reality of the church, let us learn to bless all that we have, to praise God, to bless and not curse all that has led us to this moment, and to speak words of encouragement to others. So what's your uh, comment on that, Father, particularly this uh, part here where he says, Jesus, who becomes bread? Well, it sounds it sounds pious, but modernists have the way of sounding pious and speak uh, abominations and blasphemies. And uh, this is absolutely not true. Uh, Jesus does not become bread. Okay, God became man. He took human nature, flesh and blood, right? But God does not become bread. Okay. The Catholic teaching is what we call transubstantiation, which means that all of the substance of the bread, in other words, all that is bread, uh, is actually uh, annihilated, and in its place we have the actual body of Jesus Christ. So our Lord is actually physically present there, under the appearances, only the appearances of bread and wine, remain in the Holy Eucharist. But the reality of bread and the reality of the wine or the essence of the bread, the, essence of the substance of the bread, the substance of the wine are gone. <clears throat> okay? They give way to the actual presence of our Lord himself, body and blood, soul and divinity present there. So it's not even correct to say that the Holy Eucharist contains the body and blood. It's not correct to say the bread contains the body and blood of Christ, or the wine contains the, the blood of Christ. It's not even correct to say that, because um, 
the bread and the wine and Catholic theology are gone. At the Last Supper, what did our Lord say? He did not say, this bread is my body. And he did not say, this chalice contains wine which contains my blood, or which is my blood. This wine is my blood. Our Lord didn't say that. He just said, this is my body, and this is the chalice of my blood. And uh, the Catholic Church has always taken our Lord's words very literally. And there's no doubt that he intended them to be taken very literally. As you can see, when a year before he had promised his body and blood as food and drink, and so many of our Lord's up to then disciples turned and walked away from him, saying this is a hard saying. And our Lord did not try to call them back, saying they misunderstood. They understood perfectly what he meant to say was that he was going to give them literally his body and blood to eat and to drink, and they just couldn't and would not accept it. And um, so the church, the Catholic Church, takes our Lord at his word, okay? Because she knows that he is indeed the Son of God. He has the power to do what he says he will do. And he has the love to, to make the promise that he will do this, that he will be there for us. And so uh, the church has that confidence in him that if he promised that he would be there, he will be here, and he is there. Um, Martin Luther was the one who came out with the theory of consubstantiality as opposed to transubstantiation. Martin Luther proposed the idea that um, the, the Christ, our Lord, moves into the bread and sort of cohabitates with the bread, as it were. And so you have consubstantiation, where the two substances uh, of the bread and our Lord are joined, or, or at least coexisting together, right? <clears throat> that our Lord is existing in the bread, as it were. And the same with the wine, you know. So, in fact, the other Protestants who were more radical than Luther were upset with him that he would even concede that much as far as a presence, a real presence. But Luther said, well, the, the, the text of Scripture is too strong. I, I can do no other, right? So even Luther evidently tried to find a way around it, but he couldn't do it. He couldn't justify it. So he still came up with some idea of, the, of a presence of Christ there. Uh, but it, not, not transubstantiation, not the Catholic teaching, certainly. Uh, but, which is a real miracle, clearly. Um, but... Um, what Francis is saying here, that uh, Jesus becomes the becomes bread, is on the face of it, prima facie, it's heretical. Okay, it's heretical. Um, I mean, we, we talk about the bread of angels, panis angelicus, right? But uh, this is not what Francis is referring to. This is not how he's speaking of it, clearly. And when he says... The Eucharist contains the whole mystery of the church. Why not? How does he put that again? Uh, he says that it contains the entire reality of the, the entire reality of the church. The simple bread contains that is that is not true. I mean, in terms of Catholic faith, that is not true. As though uh, somehow we are all substantially uh, one with Christ. Uh, you know, we, we all are somehow emanated from him and substantially we are one with him. Substantially, no. You know, it's such that we all become the bread and the bread contains us all or we all are the bread of the Eucharist. 
Um, in other words, you'd have a, it, it would be very, very difficult for anyone, I think, to find some type of spin with that statement to render it a Catholic meaning or try to make it fit uh, with the Catholic faith. In another part of this, he even says that God is contained within the bread or by the bread. Mm-hmm. Again, the this is an abomination to say this. In the terms of the Catholic faith, this is absolutely untenable. God is not contained in the bread. Never, ever has any Catholic said that, okay, uh, without uh, being corrected. Um, and certainly when a man who, you know, is in his position or claims to be in his position <laughs> um, says something like that, it is, it is, it, it, it is horrible. It is absolutely horrible. Um, you could not, you could not find a more fundamental attack on the Catholic faith than that, uh, even on our Lord himself. You know? um, so it is tragic to hear him say this, but it's not surprising because we have abundant evidence that Francis does not have the Catholic faith. And furthermore, that he doesn't even know what it is. He doesn't even know what it is. So how the Novus Ordo could have promoted him and brought him on and elevated him finally made him the supreme pontiff of the new order. Uh, well, I guess this is the first qualification that you don't have the Catholic faith to become the supreme pontiff of the Novus Ordo. Uh, that you be a dyed-in-the-wool modernist, which is what he is, right? He is, he is right, the, the, the accomplished, the complete, the perfect modernist to the core of his being. That's how he thinks. Uh, another issue with this uh, uh, Corpus Christi homily of his, by the way, which wasn't really given on Corpus Christi Thursday, it was given on Sunday because the Novus Ordo basically transferred all of this, what was previously solemnities and holy days. And, in, in, you know, in, other, in America, in the ancient of America, the Feast of Corpus Christi was not actually one of the holy days. But in most of the rest of the world, the Catholic world, it was one of ten holy days. But they've transferred them all to the Sunday to make it easier for people to miss because uh, relatively few of their people actually attend their liturgies, uh, even on Sundays, right? So, um, but they've transferred them with the idea, probably thinking, well, people aren't going to come anyway, so let's celebrate on, on a Sunday and there'll be at least some people there. But Francis says in here, uh, commenting on our Lord's multiplication of the loaves and the fishes and feeding the thousands of people. Uh, curiously enough, by the way, it was these very people who the next day went looking for our Lord, and they're the ones who walked away when he promised to give his body and blood. Um, but Francis talks about, um, well, he, he just mischaracterizes the gospel. He mix, mischaracterizes our Lord's actions. Uh, there, there they were, our Lord and the apostles, with thousands of people in the wilderness, right? And our Lord actually addresses the apostles. Um, and I, I think Philip might have been addressed personally, but our Lord said to them, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? And so our Lord is quoted as in the true Catholic Bible. Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? 
Lo, they've been with me three days, and now if we send them home fasting, they will faint on the way. And some of the apostles, I think it was Philip, responded, even 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough to feed this, give each one a little. Well, 200 denarii, a denarius was a day's wage. So uh, Philip was talking about what amounted to basically almost a year's uh, pay for a laborer. And uh, just to give you an idea of the immensity of the problem, but the problem is in the wilderness, even if they had the 200 denarii, they, they wouldn't have the bread to buy, you know. And so, but you know what the gospel says there? The gospel says that our Lord Jesus Christ asked the apostles this question to try them. That's what he said. That's what the gospel says, that our Lord asked them this to try them. Again, what does that say to Francis changing the Our Father? Our Lord does try us. He tries us at times, okay? He tests us. He does, right? He tested Peter walking across the water, right? He tested the Canaanite women with the, woman with the insult. It is not right to take the bread of the children and give it to the dogs. Right? He tested her with that. When our Lord uh, stayed in Jerusalem, when he, at the age of 12, spoke with the doctors of the law in the temple, while the Blessed Mother and St. Joseph were returning to Jerusalem, and they went an entire day's journey, only to have to double back and, and look for him. And they were very sad. They were sorrowful, almost as though they had somehow failed God's plan. Our Lord did not tell them what his plans, what he was going to do. He let them go. And who can say that this also was to try them? And that the graces that were given, in every one of these cases, our Lord tried these because he was going to give graces that would move them forward into the, in the spiritual life. Our Blessed Mother, St. Joseph, benefited from this trial because the graces that our Lord gave them and their acceptance of this trial, their willingness to accept this, this sorrow, uh, their willingness to accept this as a matter of cooperation with the will of God. This was part of their sanctification. And so, uh, you know, when Francis wants to change the words of the Our Father, actually does so in Italy, uh, because he doesn't like the idea of lead us not into temptation. Um, well, I'm sorry, but this is not what the Greek uh, New Testament scriptures actually say. Um, what Francis, what Francis says is a, a departure and, and actually a radical in this, knowing that he rejects the, the real meaning. It's a negation of what the, our Lord actually said in the Our Father, mm -hmm. and what the scriptures actually say. He negates that. So this is unacceptable to him and he wants to replace it with something that is acceptable to him because he says the God he believes in wouldn't do that. Okay. Well, that tells you a great deal about it. Francis's faith and what the question about what God he believes in. He really does say that. He says, God, the Father, does not do these things. And that's why we have to change this. Right. Even if this is what it actually says, that Jesus says, it, it, I'm sorry, but now we know better. Francis knows better. Right? So the other thing he says about the miracle is that the, the, the real essence of the miracle was not multiplying loaves and fishes, but Sharing. The sharing was the essential thing. That was the real miracle. 
And that's what it was really all about. And that's what the Eucharist is all about. The Eucharist is all about this. It's all about sharing, God sharing and teaching us to share. Again, this is, this is something, this is a novelty in terms of the Catholic religion, this teaching of Francis. But again, it's, it's not only because he doesn't have the same faith the Catholic Church teaches, it's because he doesn't actually believe in the same God. I mean, he's the one who stands up with the Muslims and says, we all have the same God, God wants all these different religions. And that's not true. The Catholic Church has condemned that teaching. But you see, Francis believes that because he really doesn't believe in God as you believe him and I believe him to be, as the Catholic Church has always taught him to be. Francis doesn't believe in God that way. And this is the fundamental problem. This is what we run into over and over again with him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Father, I think this whole document just 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 proves that, that point. It just reeks of modernism. And I, I think um, what he does continually throughout this homily is to... Uh, just try and bring everything down to a merely natural level. Um, this is a this is uh, one of the, the chief tenets of, of modernism, I believe, is, is that there's uh, you know there's no there are no miracles. Everything can be explained by a natural cause, and he he's uh, taking this this great miracle of, of transubstantiation, and he's um, simply trying to naturalize it and bring it down to um, to to nothing more than just this Protestant idea of of some kind of big symbol. And he talks about, you know, the the like yeah. you said with the the multiplication of the loaves, he he says that uh, surprisingly the account of the multiplication of the loaves does not mention the multiplication itself. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, the words that stand out are break and give and distribute. Mm-hmm. And so he's taking all of these supernatural yeah. concepts and just trying to naturalize everything. And that is just pure Modernism. An example of that statement is right here. Being simple and essential, bread broken and shared, the Eucharist we receive allows us to see things as God does. It inspires us to give ourselves to others. It is the antidote to the mindset that says, sorry, that is not my problem. Or I have no time, I can't help you, it's none of my business. But he says before that, the Eucharist teaches us this, for there we find God himself contained in a piece of bread. That is not true. I mean, you're right, Tom. I mean, this is, the the entire document breathes modernism, right? And for exactly the, the point that you're making, because modernism is actually not, it's something naturalistic. Mm-hmm. It's something of this world. It is not of heaven. Uh, I wouldn't even say, if, if, I think it's from another world, not from this world. Mm-hmm. But it is definitely a denial of the supernatural faith. And it's so sad to see, Father, because it's so, just this idea of the Holy Eucharist, it's Francis's idea. It's so easy to refute because there is perhaps nothing in all of sacred scripture that is more attested to than the reality of of uh, the Holy Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And if anyone actually reads sacred scripture and reads St. John's gospel and reads what, what the Bible actually has to say about this, it's absolutely antithetical to everything that Francis says. And it's clear as day for anyone to see if they want to see it. And I think that's the problem that so many just don't want to see it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just easier to believe in these natural Natural explanation. Well, I mean, even the earliest writers of the church, St. Justin Martyr in the second century, right? He talks about saying, he talks about the Blessed Sacrament, 
being the actual body and blood of Christ that was born of the Virgin Mary and that died on the cross. But he talks not about sharing it. He talks about, yes, those who believed, but he talks about not giving it to those unless they actually have the faith. So denying it to those who don't have the faith. So there you have that division um, that there are those who, yes, partake of it and those who definitely must not be allowed to do so because they don't have the faith in it. Francis just talks about it as, oh, it's just put your hand out. Let us, you know, give you a piece of God. I mean, this is the way he talks here. We'll share with you. We're going to share all of this with you. Pure naturalism, um, which is never pure, and, uh, and pure modernism. And, you know, people are reacting, again, I mean, when people keep reacting to what Francis is saying, people who still have the faith react. And, and they're, they're wringing their hands, like, what are we going to do? You know, we have a pope who doesn't have the faith. And the answer is nothing. There's nothing we can do. That's, that's how the Novus Ordo think now. That's how the New Order conservatives think. And that is not the Catholic faith. That's not what the Catholic faith teaches us traditionally. Um, why they can't seem to figure out or accept the fact that there is, uh, there's a question. <laughs> there, there is at least a very serious question about this man having the faith, and there are serious consequences to not having the faith, right? And being a her heretic. And uh, why they, they keep saying, but he's the Pope and there's nothing we can do about it. Or they even keep saying, but he's the Pope and he can't be a heretic. No matter what he says, he just can't be the heretic. He's not allowed to be a heretic, right? We're not allowed to think he's a heretic. And even if he's a heretic, we're not allowed to call him a heretic. This is the, the, the morass. This is the swamp, the quicksand that they're in right now. These conservatives, rather than just face the fact that the very least anybody can say is there's certainly there's a doubt. There's an absolute un, inescapable doubt at the very least about this man's faith and this man's papacy, right? It's gotten so desperate among the, the conservative Novus Ordos that now they're trying to say, well, you know, Francis really never was the Pope because Benedict never really resigned. So they're getting that desperate now to, to say, well, Fra Benedict is really still the Pope, even though Benedict says he's not, doesn't count. Um, and they're making, you know, elaborate arguments for that fact. But you ask, well, what, what does that help, you know? They talk about bene vacantism, as we talked about last time. But how is this bene? I mean, how is this well? How does this end well? What good can possibly come from that? They might say, well, if Francis, if we say that Francis really wasn't the Pope, these are the same people who, would, who say, you say the vacantists are crazy, horrible <laughs> people. And now they're saying this, that Francis never was the Pope because Benedict remains the Pope, okay? But I asked them, okay, so what, what is their point here? What are they trying to get at? Even if, even if one were to concede that Benedict was not as un-Catholic as Francis, or not as boldly, audaciously un-Catholic as Francis, what would one gain by that? They might say, well, then all of these cardinals that Francis has made in all of his appointments are null and void. So all of these pro-homosexual, LGBT, you know, promoting cardinals and bishops made by Francis, they're not real. You say, okay, so you want to turn back the clock to the time when Benedict had all of his cardinals who elected Francis. 
And that's those are the those are the ones we've got to deal with. Only only Benedict's cardinals are the ones we have left, and they're the ones who who elected Francis in the first place. So you ask yourself, they're 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 painting themselves into a corner. They're they're heading down a dead end, you know, um, with all of this all of this speculation, desperately desperately trying to explain Francis, trying to explain him, trying to explain away. Where the Catholic, obvious Catholic answer is, look, the very least you can say there's a, there's a doubt about him, right? And as long as his authority, whatever authority he has, is uncertainty, at least if you can accept that fact, that his authority is at least uncertain, then you're not obliged in conscience to recognize an uncertain authority. Mm-hmm. And you're not obliged to obey an uncertain authority mm-hmm. or to recognize its acts as having having power, you know, moral power. So uh, uh, why they can't allow themselves to at least come to that very basic, benign realization, I don't know. I don't understand that. Father, but anyway. So. We, uh, we, received, we received an email that, that ties in with all of this that you're talking about. It was in response to our last program where you talked about uh, St. Paul's epistle to the, Thess- to the Thessalonians and um, the second chapter of that where he mentioned the restrainer. And uh, this viewer wrote in and said, if you really believe what the church fathers and saints believe about who is the restrainer being the Pope or the, the Holy Eucharist or even both of them, then this proves that sedificantism is, is nonsense. And it is absurd since you believe that popes since John the 23rd are not valid popes and that the Novus Ordo rites and mass are invalid. It is absurd if that would be the case. Then how come the Antichrist hasn't shown himself to the world yet? This means that the popes must still be valid popes, and the Novus Ordo Mass still consecrates the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he also says that uh, the Sede Vicantists better reconsider their position and come back to the Catholic Church since they jumped out of the boat believing they have the truth, and they are the faithful remnant. They have the same Lutheran attitude of pride and making their own church says, yes, there's a lot of modernism and bad priests, but that doesn't mean that our Lord and the Holy Spirit are not present in the Novus Ordo Mass and Sacraments. Your response to that email, Father? Well, if I understand him correctly, there's a, a serious lapse of logic here. Because his whole point seems to be that if we say, right, if we say that the restrainer holding back the Antichrist is going to be the Pope. What we said in the program, right? The, the um, commentators on the scriptures, the fathers of the church, speak of the restrainer as being a person, the Pope, uh, speak of the um, the restrainer as being a thing, right? A, a neuter, the, the, uh, the blessed sacrament, our Lord's presence in the Holy Eucharist, right? And he seems to be arguing, well, if we say it's the Pope then, we must say there must still be a pope because the Antichrist hasn't appeared yet. Is that what he's saying? Yes. So, so the fact that the Antichrist hasn't appeared yet is proof positive that, well, at least as far as we're concerned, if we think that it was the pope is the restrainer, that uh, that Francis must be the pope because the Antichrist hasn't appeared. Right. And as soon as there is no pope, he will appear. But that's not what we said. We didn't imply that. We just said... The restrainer has to be taken out of the way. That's what the scripture says. It doesn't say that 
uh, the, the restrainer will be taken out of the way and instantaneously the Antichrist will, will uh, you know, pop out of, the, out of the box and say, here I am. Um, it's just that this has to be accomplished before the Antichrist can come. That was St. Paul's point. St. Paul's point was not the Antichrist will appear immediately after the restrainer is taken out of the way. His point was the restrainer has to be removed before the Antichrist can come, or at least manifest himself, right? I mean, even, even uh, Pope St. Pius X <coughs> dreaded being elected the Pope and then dreaded accepting the position. They're two separate things. I mean, you know, you can be elected and refuse the position, at which point you were never the Pope. You're not, you don't become the Supreme Pontiff of the Roman Catholic Church until you accept the position with all the responsibilities that come with it. Um, and so St. Pius X was uh, really suffering like an agony in the garden over this when Cardinal Mary de Law came to him and uh, encouraged him. And St. Pius X saw it as the will of God, so he accepted. But in his first, in his first encyclical, October 4th, uh, 1903, a supremi, St. Pius X said that he dreaded, he dreaded the idea of being the Pope now, especially, and he, he didn't, he said he was terrified to be the Pope. He said he was terrified to be the Pope. Not humbled, terrified because he feared that this was a time of the coming of the Antichrist. He said in that encyclical that he feared that the time spoken of by St. Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, referring to the coming of the Antichrist, was already happening, that it was either all, the Antichrist was already in the world at that time or soon to come. That's what he said. But he was a pope, okay? He, there was no question that he was a true valid pope there, okay? But he expected the Antichrist could be in the world, but soon to come. So, um, you know, what, what our writer is, is writing here is, uh, you know, making, he's making assumptions that are not accurate, that are not valid. Nowhere did we even imply that once the restrainer is taken out of the way, the Antichrist will immediately leap into action and, uh, but there will be a process. There will be a time. Uh, some says some say he even needs his own anti John the Baptist as a precursor to prepare the way for him. So again, these things will take time, and they will develop over time. Uh, so if his whole argument is the point, well, these men must be hopes because uh, the Antichrist hasn't appeared yet, then that is not a valid argument. They all okay. It's certainly not a valid argument against anything. Um, I myself, as I've mentioned before, have some very serious issues with sedevacantists and also with sedevacantism, okay, as an ism, as a belief system in the sense uh, that's dogmatized, you know. Um, but at the same time, I do not say it is absurd, okay, it, it is not an absurdity. Um, what is absurd is that you can have a heretical pope who's blatantly heretical and scandalizing the world and uh, basically telling people to worship the world, right, as though it were the new deity. In other words, it, you know, if you were to examine Francis's statements, he could be a capitalist. 
He could be a Kabbalist. You saw the, the red bracelet on the wrist of the young lady who handed Francis the witch's stang, right. which he later carried at the first liturgy of the youth synod. Well, that, that is the, the symbol of the Jewish Kabbal, the Kabbalah, right? Which is Jewish Gnosticism, okay? Which is not Catholicism, okay? <laughs> Modernism itself is a, is a, 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 uh, an offspring of Gnosticism. It is a form of Gnostic belief, modernism. So, um, you know, one might say, well, okay, Francis is not Catholic, but what is he? Right now, Tom, I, I actually would say he probably is more a Kabbalist. With all of his uh, consorting and praising of the liberal Jewish, uh, the modernist Jewish groups around the world and rabbis, right? I mean, he's basically willing to consort with the same people and bow down before them that these celebrities are willing to consort with. They were wearing the red bracelet, advertising their adherence to the Jewish cabal. Again, a form of Gnosticism. Not Catholicism at all. Quite the contrary. Uh, a very serious form of the occult, really. Honestly, at its root. So... Um, no, I, I think this uh, poor writer here is, is uh, well, I know he's, he's very clearly mistaken. You know what first came to mind when you told me this last part about, you know, Luther and Luther and all? Well, um, the day I was ordained, June 29th, 1978, I was in Cone, and there were 10,000 people there, gathered there for the ordinations. And after the ordinations, uh, for hours, people were milling about talking. And Monsignor Lefebvre, God rest his soul, his valiant soul, Monsignor Lefebvre was down in the courtyard uh, before this beautiful statue of St. Pius X. And um, in this crowd of people, he was talking, and they were very jubilant at the court ordinations. And I'm sure by that time, the Archbishop was very tired. He just had a, a ceremony that lasted about five hours. Okay. And um, <clears throat> all of a sudden, all of a sudden, we saw him turn around very quickly and confront a priest who had come up behind him. And there was an animated conversation between them. And I found out what happened. This priest had come up behind Archbishop Lefebvre and said, you're doing exactly what Luther did. Well, Monsignor Lefebvre turned around immediately. And he had very powerful hands. <clears throat> and he, took, he put, took the priest by his lapels. And he held him and he said, who is doing what Luther did? Who is doing what Luther did? Right? In French, of course. And you could see in his eyes, you know, that he was not amused. Okay? But I can understand exactly why he would say that. Here you got this Francis here who's, who's professing Lutheran belief in salvation and justification. He is making a, a, a public issue of his, his Lutheran beliefs. Here he comes out in favor of Lutheran teaching on the Eucharist, right? And, um, 
the man has a statue of Luther adorned there on the stage when he's giving his his Wednesday audiences to the people who come to see him. Luther, he goes to uh, Sweden to celebrate the 500th anniversary of Luther tacking the 95 theses uh, on the door of the Cathedral of Wittenberg, celebrating Luther's rev revolt against the Catholic religion, right? And yet, when we object to what he's doing, we're doing what Luther did. Everything is inside out, upside down, backwards, forwards. It, everything is, is topsy-turvy. It's like the whole world has is, is, is gone crazy. You know? Reality has nothing to do with reality. <laughs> you know? it, there is no reality except what you make it out to be for yourself. This is the essence of existentialism. And this is how people are not thinking right now. They're feeling. And uh, so um, actually... The fact is, Francis is the one doing what Luther is doing. But beyond that, Luther would be horrified at a lot of things, even that Francis is doing right now. Luther himself would be horrified at some of the things that Luther, that Francis is doing right now. And uh, we might say that Francis doesn't have the Catholic faith, and it's, he's making it very apparent to anybody who has eyes to see and ears to hear but Luther today might even say, well, he's not even worthy for me to call him a Protestant. He doesn't even have that much faith of the faith, right? Um, of my 95 theses, you know? <laughs> so, um, I mean, this is the stat state that we've got here. So, uh, well, we haven't gotten, thank goodness, because we're traditional Catholics. And we are still adhering to the traditional Catholic faith and the traditional Catholic religion. We're not adhering to modernism, and we're not practicing the Novus Ordo, the New Order religion. Thanks be to God. Uh, we need to be more determined, though, to rescue people, because there are people who are going to the Novus Ordo, and they're up to their ears in the Novus Ordo, but they know it's wrong. They know it's wrong. <coughs> they're wading through this, right? And uh, they know this is not Catholicism, but they haven't a clue as to what to do about it. And they're held in bondage by this idea. Well, you know, whatever the Pope says. My own grandmother said this to me once. Over the telephone once I was talking to her. She was 90 years old at the time. And she was going to the New Order. And I was telling her, you know, Grandma, this isn't right. She said, well, can't the Pope change the faith if he wants to? That's what she said. And I said to her, no, no, Grandma. The Pope cannot change the faith if he wants to. He cannot overrule Jesus Christ. He's not a new Christ or a replacement for Christ or a successor of Christ. He is merely the representative and he can really betray Christ. He cannot change the faith if he wants to. And heaven uh, only knows what she'd be saying now, but by the grace of God, my grandmother shortly thereafter came back to practicing the traditional Catholic faith. And she practiced very faithfully until her death at the age of 97. God rest her soul. And so, um, I mean, she, she actually kind of represents, I think, a lot of the people in the Nova Soto right now who still have the faith, but they don't know what to do. They're paralyzed by this, this dilemma 
of what they see as authority in the Vatican and what they believe is what they, and their belief and their actual faith and their religion. And they have an authority which is smashing that and smashing that. And they don't know what to do. The answer is a lot simpler, perhaps, maybe a little too simple for some, but it is, it is what the Catholic people have always done in times of crisis. They have held on to the traditional faith. They have never deviated from that. And those who did that in times of crisis were always the ones who came through every crisis with the faith. And they're the ones whom the church and the authority of the church praised and even canonized for holding on to the faith in times of confusion and crisis. And if ever that was necessary right now, it's necessary now. We have to hold on to the traditional Catholic faith. Attend only the traditional mass offered by a real traditional Catholic priest, not a would-be or a wannabe traditional Catholic priest, but a real traditional Catholic priest who really is traditional and uh, traditionally ordained and traditionally trained and believes traditionally and acts traditionally, right? Employs the traditional standards of the church uh, in all that he does. This is what we need to do. Back to the mass, the sacraments, the catechism, and all the rest. And uh, Francis can take this Mad Hatter's wild ride, and all those poor people who follow him are going to wind up. Now they're going to wind up with him. And uh, it's not a good place. Sure. So anyway, you know the um, we can talk about all these all these things going on, and we have to. Unfortunately, we do. I wonder what it was like, um, you know, a hundred years ago when uh, you know priests could meet, we could talk about the faith, and not have to talk about things like this. You know, it was un unheard of, unthinkable that things like this would be happening uh, back then. And we could just talk about the glories of the faith and the beauty of the faith and uh, what it is to, to love God and be faithful to him, you know. How Catholics should be militant in their faith and, and look to try to save souls. I mean, in the old days, uh, Catholics were looking to save the souls of those who are outside the church. Um, and, um, you know, who, who were anti-Catholic even, you know, those who were separated from the church. Now, now the question is, we're trying to exercise a rescue operation, search and rescue, for souls who still have the faith within the Novus Ordo, and we're trying to bring them back to practicing the traditional faith. What a dramatic, unthinkable development, right? I call it transformation, right? But uh, those who do, um, those who do find their way back to, to practicing the traditional faith, I've noticed all breathe a sigh of relief, saying, finally, finally, I'm where I belong. Finally, I'm back home again. This is, where I, this is where I need to be. This is where my faith is. This is my religion. I'm practicing it now. And I know that God brought me here. I, this is a matter of his grace, and they're very grateful. They're very, very grateful to God for that. I pray that all those in the Novus Ordo who still adhere to that, uh, because it is a sinking ship, uh, will find their way back to the traditional faith and have that gratitude to God for rescuing them. Mm -hmm. Well, Father, uh, let's end with this. I just wanted to mention that today, um, June 25th, is the feast day of St. William, your patron yes, saint, it is, I believe. 
What what do we have to learn from him today? Well, there was an abbot and a regularity of life. Okay, regularity of life. And, you know, the church canonizes many brilliant, brilliant men, but they're not canonized for being brilliant. They're canonized for, for loving God. That's the essential thing, right? And so she has also canonized those who weren't exceptionally intellectually gifted, but they were spiritually gifted because they had a great love for God. So she'll canonize the St. Joseph Cupertinos and uh, even St. John Vianney's. You know, he was not intellectually lagging, but he just had a hard time learning Latin, <laughs> as you know. Uh, so he, he felt challenged in that regard. But... Uh, as well as the St. Thomas Aquinas and the St. Bonaventures and so on. And uh, the the essential quality of all of these saints was a profound love for God in all things and a desire to love him more and more um, and uh, to be faithful, absolutely faithful to him. This is what we can learn from St. William the Abbot. Um, he uh, presided over his uh, abbey with uh, such a love for God, he inspired those, the monks who were under him. And um, he, he lived, if, you, if you're asking for something that, that's like distinguished him from other saints, right? That like something distinctive about him that made him different from other saints. I don't know, there isn't. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point he has in common with all the saints, the thing that made them saints, right? That was what is important. Uh, not any distinctive characteristic of him. Right. So um, that's that's what comes to mind anyway. And uh, I uh, pray that through his powerful intercession in heaven, right, he is now loving God with all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul and all of his strength. And he knows very well what's happening here because he sees us now in, in the mind of God. Right? I pray that he will bless us and bless the listeners to this program. And I pray that he will, he will help us in this search and rescue operation for those who still have the faith in the shipwreck of the Nevisoto to bring them back to practicing the traditional faith, the very faith that he lived in and died in, the faith that justified him from sin, sanctify his soul here on earth and glorify his soul in heaven. Led to his glorification. I pray that, you know, he will be a, uh, a active on earth, certainly, for the souls of, of, of people here on earth as he is active in heaven glorifying God. Sure. Father, thank you for being here tonight. Appreciate your time. Well, certainly, Tom. Thank you. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady of Fatima to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary and to pray and do penance. Thank you and God bless you.